بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين In terms of tafsir without a shadow of a doubt in both English and Arabic and it is available in English and uh, actually while I'm on going to uh, plug for the Humble Foundation uh, we're actually working on giving away free copies, but we haven't quite got there yet. But it is available to buy through an organization in America without a shadow of a doubt is Tafsir al-Sa'di. And Tafsir al-Sa'di is hands down the best summarized Tafsir that a regular Muslim can read. And there's nothing that even comes close to it in terms of a summarized, easy Tafsir that people can read. And why Tafsir al-Sa'di is better than other summarized, and I'm not talking about like the likes of Ibn Kathir, they're not in the same category. I'm talking about a small, summarized volume of Tafsir. The reason Tafsir al-Sa'di is better is because it is in its own right a work of, it's an original work in its own right. Whereas books like Zubda to Tafsir and, and these books are very good, but essentially all they do is simply summarize other books you know, a summary of, you know, basically Ibn Kathir, or a summary of Al-Qurtubi, or a summary of Al-Tabari. Tafsir al-Sa'di, in its own right, is an original work. It has things in there that you will not find in Tafsir al-Tabari, and you will not find in Ibn Kathir, and you will not find in Al-Qurtubi. It has gems in there that you will not find anywhere else. Al-Sa'di was a genius. And this Tafsir is absolutely amazing. Now, it's available in English, but the problem is it's only available from the U.S., and it's very expensive. But we have spoke to the brothers in the U.S. about getting some copies and about being able to, to uh, basically distribute it online as an e-book or, uh, or distribute it for a lower price as part of the charity. And we're currently having negotiations, inshallah. So I'm hopeful that, ta'ala, in the next few weeks, we'll come to a conclusion on that and we'll be able to distribute it. Otherwise, one very important or one very beneficial tafsir that you can read is to read the translation of uh, Muhsin Khan, which is translated, uh, which is the copy that is printed by the uh, Mujamma Malik Fahad, rahimahullah, in, uh, in Medina. Because it in itself is not a translation. And Muhsin Khan and uh, Salim al Hilali never, uh, uh, never intended. Uh, for uh, sorry, Taqid, uh, the Muhsin Khan and Hilali never intended for this book to be a book of a, a translation of the Quran. They intended for it to be a summarized tafsir of the Quran. So it's very good. I also think that Zubdat al Tafsir is being brought out by uh, Dar al Sunnah in the UK. So there are some good books, but in Arabic, tafsir, start with Tafsir al Sa'di. And from Tafsir al Sa'di, you can move upwards to. You can move upwards to, uh, you know, Tafsir ibn Kathir, to other uh, Tafsir. Uh, but I, my sincere advice is avoid the Tafsir of uh, the people of innovation. You don't need it. And our Sheikh uh, Ali ibn Ghazi Tawajiri in Medina, who is a professor of Tafsir, he used to encourage us very strongly. Don't go to the books of innovation for Tafsir unless you absolutely, you know, don't find any other explanation of the ayah. And that's not for the ordinary people book. That was what he said to the students. 
He said, you know, at the end of the day, you can find the explanation in Tabari, you can find it in Al-Qurtubi, you can find it in Shawkani's tafsir, you can find it in Sa'di's tafsir, you can find it in Sheikh ibn Taymin's tafsir. You don't need to go to the books of the innovators, Ar-Razi, and then the, the books of the Ashaira, like Al-Jalalain and, and uh, Ibn Ashur, and the other people from the Ashaira and the Maturidiya who wrote in tafsir. You don't need their tafsir. You can get that later on, at, you know, at master's level, you can maybe benefit some parts of it. But, you know, you have some people who take their tafsir from Tafsir al-Razi in the beginning. And Tafsir al-Razi is a book that, wallahi, many people, you read it, you won't come out with any Islam after you've finished. You know, it's a book of kalam and a book of, you know, evil. There's so much evil in it. And there's a great deal of good in it as well, no doubt. But at the end of the day, people are not able to distinguish. So don't go to the books of the innovative books of Tafsir stick to the books of the people of the Sunnah, and stick to the summarized books in the beginning. Because as you'll notice, Ibn Kathir mentions many different opinions for the ayat. And the problem with this is, it can be very confusing for a person to read six, seven different opinions about an ayah. Better than that is to take a book like As-Sa'di, or the Tafsir of Shaykh Ibn Thaymeen, or Zubdat al-Tafsir, or one of these small books of Tafsir, and to understand the ayah well first of all, and then you can read the ikhtilaf in the ayah, was it about this, was it about this, and stuff like that. So in general, my advice is avoid the innovative books of tafsir, you don't need them, uh, and uh, stick to the books of the people of the sunnah. And when you reach a certain level, then you can expand, you know, you can expand to longer books and more detailed books, and from the best of them is tafsir al-tabari. And tafsir al-tabari is a tafsir that is upon the sunnah, and a tafsir that is free from the, you know, the, the innovation that crept into the tafsir that came later on. You know. But the problem with it is, is it's also very, 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 very uh, detailed and uh, very, very difficult to read. Uh, it takes a lot of, you know, it takes a teacher and it takes being pointed out. So in the beginning, you know, for those of you who speak Arabic, uh, tafsir al-Sa'di, and then up to tafsir ibn Kathir. Uh, and likewise in English, I think that's a similar route you would take. Start with a, maybe Mohsin Khan translation, then go to Tafsir al Sa'di, then go up to uh, you know, Tafsir uh, uh, Ibn Kathir. If you must read something like Al Jalalain, then be aware, at least be aware of the aqidah problems that are in it, and be aware of the, the ayat that are, that are normally the Ashairah make ta'wil of the ayah, or you know, be, be aware of this because the authors were, they had their mistakes, so you have to be careful of that. We discussed yesterday about uh, the women traveling uh, with, uh, with a mahram. Uh, the questioner asks, so what are the minimum require, requirements for this? And can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, at what point is she allowed to uh, travel on her own? And at what point does she require uh, a mahram? There are a number of things that we need to mention with regard to this. The first is that the basic principle is that a woman does not travel at all without a mahram. And by travel, we mean the actual, we mean traveling in, the, in the, the urf of the word, in terms of what people understand to be traveling. Now, the hadith mentions a day and a night. Some of the hadith mentions three days and three nights. Some of them mention that it's not permissible for her to travel at all. Most of the scholars hold that a day and a night is a, is a rough guide. And that does not mean the time of a day and a night. Because in a day and a night, you can travel all over the world. It means the distance of a day and a night's travel according to the time of the Prophet 
and that is by almost all of the scholars of Usul, they say that the, the, the distances of travel are to be judged by walking time or by the time on a slow camel. And so essentially you're looking at something like, I'm not good with kilometers, but in miles, something like 45 miles, something like that, 40 miles, 45 miles. You know, I think you're looking at like 70 kilometers, 80 kilometers, something like that. However, this in itself is not a guarantee that within that distance the woman can travel wherever she wants. There are certain conditions. First of all, that the sister has permission of her guardian, her husband, or her uh, father, or whatever it may be, for the, for the travel that she, for the, the inner city travel that she is making. Secondly, there should be no danger to her on the road in terms of there should be no fear that she's going to be attacked or no fear of anything you know, similar to that. If there's a fear of that, then it's not even permissible to go to the local masjid. You know? And that is true you know, of, of everybody in terms of if there's a fear of being attacked or there's a fear of you know, some sort of unrest or something like that, then that's a different situation. Um, the only exception to the traveling rule is the one of extreme need. For example, you have a revert sister who doesn't have a mahram and she needs to travel to another city to have medical treatment. Now bear in mind that if it's not allowed for hajj, then the need has to be extremely severe. You know, it's not, it's not a matter of, oh, you know, I really need to go and get this thing from this other city. You know, it's, it has to be something that is a matter of really, you know, importance. And, and uh, it's very important that people understand that, you know, this applies to traveling in general. So whatever you guys consider traveling, I guess you guys don't consider, and I don't know, I guess you don't consider Dubai to Sharjah to be traveling in a, in a sense of, in any sense of the word, you know, you consider it just to be like inner city travel, you know, but again, you might consider, I don't know, crossing the border of the Emirates to be uh, travel, it depends on the local people, what they consider that to be, but as a rough guide, you're looking about 40 miles, 45 miles, something like that, and as for what's within that, then you're looking at, you know, you're looking at it, it being safe, and there haven't been permission. And that permission can be of two types. There can be a general permission or a specific permission. A specific permission, maybe you, know, you say to your husband that, is it okay if I go across Dubai to the other side of Dubai and I see this person? Yeah, no problem. And a general permission might be that you don't need to ask every time because you know that your husband has said that I don't have a problem with you going to see your sister who lives in Charger, for example. And so you, she, he knows that you're going to do that from time to time and you don't, he, he's given you a general, a general permission for it, like you generally understand. For example, some of, the, some of the people said, well, do I need to ask every time I go to the local supermarket or every time I go to the local mall, do I have to ask? And some people say no, because the, you have a general understanding that you know that your mahram or your, your wali doesn't mind, you know, your husband or your father doesn't mind you going to the local shop. And he, he, it's never a problem. Whereas there are some things you would need a specific permission for if you're going for you know, something that they wouldn't be aware of. And this is something that at the end of the day is there for the purpose uh, which Allah ha has decreed in His wisdom. And subhanAllah, a lot of the time we get hooked up on these things and we get worried about them. But at the end of the day, everyone is responsible to somebody else. You know, the husband is no different. He has his mother he has to ask her permission for, for many things in terms of his uh, decisions and his traveling and so on and so forth. He has the waliul amr, 
the, the ruler above him who he has to ask his permission to leave the country or to come into the country or to you know, do certain things or start certain businesses or hold certain... Everyone has people who are in authority over them. And that's at the end of the day, Allah is in authority over everyone. And if somebody abuses their authority, whether it's a husband over his wife or a father over his daughter, Allah will take them to account for that. So at the end of the day, what our job is to, is to obey Allah. And our obedience to other human beings is simply an expression of our obedience to Allah. Nothing more than that. It's not that, you know, this person is better than me in the sight of Allah. They may not be better than you in the sight of Allah. Many, many times the husband will not be better than the wife in the sight of Allah. And there's no reason why he should be better than, Allah, than, than her in the sight of Allah. But at the end of the day, you have an organizational structure, just like you have a structure in the country, just like you have a structure in, you know, in your job and all the other things. And you know, at the end of the day, you, you follow that structure because that's how the community stays together and that's how the family stays together as a unit. And at the end of the day, it's something it's to do with obeying Allah. So we advise people not to, um, not to get too sort of hung up and not to get too worried about these kind of things and become really defensive and why do I have to ask? Allah told you to do it, the Prophet told you to do it. And at the end of the day, we're all here to obey Allah. We're not here because of other people, we're here to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And our obedience to Allah sometimes comes through obeying other people. Whether that's in a work situation or a country situation or a family situation, that's something that we all have to do. And we all, you know, the husband is no different. They get used to, you know, he has people that he has to listen to and he has to obey. And, uh, you know, all of us at the end of the day, our intention should be to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the ruling with regard to the mahram is like that, inshallah, that the sister, if she's going to travel outside of the city, outside of what is considered to be local, then she needs to have a mahram with her. And again, people say, well, things are so safe these days. Uh, people don't need it. You know, at the end of the day, subhanAllah, this is something that if you open your eyes and read the news, you'll find it's not true. And, you know, a person says, well, you know, I don't know, maybe my husband wouldn't help me in this situation. At the end of the day, obeying Allah is enough. It's enough that you obey Allah. And Allah knows the wisdom for the things that he does. And subhanAllah, sometimes we can't see the wisdom. And sometimes we can see the wisdom. But the wisdom is always there. No matter whether you can see it or you can't see it, the wisdom is always there. So obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, obey the Prophet and obey those people who are in authority over you. Ya amanu, rasul wa amri minkum. O you who believe, obey Allah and obey the Messenger and those in authority over you. And note that the word obey is repeated twice, not three times. And the reason for that is it's repeated twice because your obedience to Allah is absolute. I, there's never a time when you don't obey Allah. And your obedience to the Messenger وسلم, is absolute. There's never a time you don't obey the Messenger. As for your obedience to other human beings, if they tell you to do what Allah told you to do, then you obey them. And if they tell you to disobey Allah, then you don't obey them. Whether that's the husband or, or anybody else. Allah knows best. Is there a question from the sisters? Sister's side. Assalamu alaikum. I just wanted to ask you about uh, yesterday's, in the light of yesterday's hadith, about giving up your right uh, in the interest of another brother or something. Does that apply in, in inheritance, the virasat? With regard to the inheritance, it is obligatory for the inheritance to be divided according to the command of Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. However, if somebody wants to give up their right 
and it's a right of theirs alone and not a right of Allah it's a right of theirs alone they can give up that right to somebody else if the person is in need of it but that money has to come to them first so for example what I want to avoid is that somebody says oh you know uh, you should give up your right and then they don't get their inheritance money at all and it's pr- they're pressured into it it's not that they're choosing to give up their right they're just being pressured by somebody into not applying the sharia rather we say that the inheritance should be divided correctly according to the sunnah everyone gets their, their portion if then one person takes that inheritance and gives it to another person because they feel that their other family member is more in need than them and they don't need it and their other family member does then this is from al-ithar this is from giving up your, your right for somebody else but it shouldn't be something that is pressured by somebody uh, into giving up the sunnah you know, into giving up the proper division of the inheritance that oh you know just don't give it we don't you know just ignore it no get it done according to the sunnah and then give it up if you want to give it up but if you don't want to give it up it's, it's your right to have inshallah. any other questions from the sisters assalamu alaikum um, we have two questions here one is about um, the sisters asking about giving zakah on platinum gold white gold versus gold uh, yellow gold whether it's the same uh, amount of zakah that's supposed to be given and also whether if jewelry is worn occasionally but not every day whether zakah should be given on that type of jewelry um, okay the second question is a travel follow-up travel question if a woman has permission from her from her mahram to travel to Mecca from Dubai which is a three-hour I guess flight and um, with her children uh, should she avail that opportunity to see her family and Umrah? Or should she forget, forgo that opportunity if it's not Islamically the best option? Uh, inshallah, I'll answer the last question first. Uh, if her children are old enough to be her mahram for her, uh, such that the boy, one of the boys is older than the age of puberty, then it, there's no harm in her traveling with that uh, person. Otherwise, it's not permissible for her to disobey Allah by traveling to Makkah without mahram and it would be a travel of disobedience and it would not be a travel of obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so either she should convince her husband to take her to Makkah and come back uh, for example for him just to fly to drop her there with her family and come back or for someone from her family to come and pick her up and come back inshallah one way or the other uh, as regards if her children are old enough to be her mahram then inshallah there's no harm in her going with whichever mahram it is whether it's her child who's older whether it's her a brother, whether it's her father, whether it's her husband, it doesn't matter as long as she has a mahram with her. But Makkah is too far, too far to travel because it's more than a day and a night's walking journey. And it's more than three day and three nights walking journey, you know, whichever way you look at it, it's, it's more, than the, more than the journey that is permitted. As for the zakah on, uh, on white gold and the zakah on jewelry, as for white gold, as far as I'm aware, as long as it's gold is gold, you know, as long as it's gold, um, it doesn't matter whether it's yellow gold or whether it's white gold. The zakah, the ruling in the zakah is the same, as long as it is considered to be gold. Um, as regards uh, jewelry, then jewelry, uh, the zakah is to be paid on it, inshallah, regardless of whether it is worn regularly or it's not worn regularly. And I know that these are issues there is some disagreement about because the argument is that the jewelry you wear regularly is closer to a tool that you just have in the house than it is to a possession of wealth. But that's not really true. At the end of the day, uh, the jewelry that you have, uh, if that jewelry is gold or silver, 
then it has to be the zakah has to be paid. As for platinum, I'll have to check it. I'll have to check the fatwa on platinum, whether or not platinum is considered to be similar to gold and silver, or whether or not platinum platinum is excluded. I, off the top of my head, I don't recall. I'll check the fatwa, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, in the break and we'll get back to you on the platinum inshallah but with regard to gold and silver uh, whether the jewelry is worn regularly or whether it's not and the evidence is the hadith of, uh, of Fatima radiallahu anha regarding the bracelets and uh, these are hadith are clear that you know the jewelry that a woman has whether she uses it regularly or whether she stores it for wealth is the zakah is due upon it and you, can, you don't have to uh, give that zakah in, uh, in the same jewelry and the same gold, but you can pay the cash equivalent of it. So you take your gold, if you don't know the value of your gold, you take it to a goldsmith and they give you a value. Okay, your gold is $4,000 or, or, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 dirhams or whatever it is. And then you then will pay the cash equivalent of the zakah upon that for every year. Once a year passes that you've had that gold in your possession, you pay the zakah in, in a cash amount. If you don't have the cash, then you have to sell something uh, from the gold or from some of your other possessions to be able to pay the zakah on it, inshallah. And then the other thing with zakah, of course, is you can always go on the safe side. If you ever doubt anything in zakah, there's no harm in playing it safe and giving zakah on more things than less. Any extra zakah you give is just sadaqah that you can, that, you know, that is on your account. But platinum, I will have to check. Uh, we'll take one more question from the uh, brothers and then start the uh, explanation again. Sheikh, my question is uh, regarding uh, the different practices we have worldwide in different regions with regards to mainly the prayers, daily prayers. Uh, what we see, uh, particularly in the inside prayers, we have different paraiyas, like uh, telling Amin loudly after Surah Al-Fatiha, like uh, doing Rafiyah then, and uh, regarding pray, uh, doing uh, uh, dua after, after the prayer, there are a lot of differences and people uh, ex experience these things as we travel to different regions, back home to our countries and, and in this part things are practiced in a different way. And uh, I'm talking with regards to nasiha, some people do, uh, saying that what you are doing this is not right and you should change it to the other way which is being followed in certain regions. So there is a confusion amongst uh, people as they travel to different regions and during the act people feel that uh, they see with suspicion that someone has come and is doing a different practice when all others are practicing in one, one form. So my question is uh, what should be the approach of people and should we do nasiha to, to express uh, upon them our uh, belief that this is the right way and the other one is not the right way or uh, should we learn more about which is the right way and try to follow it within ourselves. Could you throw some light on this, Sheikh, uh, inshallah? This is a very, very important question. And uh, I would summarize this question in that it deals with the differences of opinion between the Muslims and when we should give advice and when we shouldn't. And the brother mentioned a few things. For example, people making dua after the prayer, uh, I guess in congregation, People saying Amin aloud or not saying Amin aloud. Uh, I guess people reading Bismillah aloud with Surah Al-Fatiha or not. Should we advise them or should we not advise them? I think there are a number of points to make on this. The first is that our aim in everything is to follow the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And especially in the prayer, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Pray as you see me pray. 
So you have to try to make your prayer as close to the prayer of the Prophet as possible. However, in this we have to have a bit of fiqh when it comes to the differences of opinion. And to realize that differences of opinion are not all the same, of the same level, of the same importance. Some of them are huge differences that are very serious and should be dealt with very seriously. And I'll give you an example of that from the hadith. The companions went out with the Prophet ﷺ to Hunayn when they were new to Islam. And they passed by a tree which was called Zatu Anwat. And they said, O Messenger of Allah, make for us a tree like the polytheists have a tree. They had a tree to seek barakah from. They said, make for us a tree like you have a tree. The Prophet ﷺ spoke to them so harshly. He, he shouted at them, he raised his voice, he became red in the face, and he spoke to them extremely harshly. That is because what they said is essentially leading to shirk. It's a form of shirk and it's a mistake that was going to lead them into making shirk. So serious issues need to be dealt with in serious ways. Let's go right to the other side and go to an issue where there's a difference of opinion and the difference of opinion, the evidence on both sides is very strong. I'll give you an example. When you raise up from the ruku', do you put your hands on your chest or do you put your hands by your sides? The evidence for both is very strong and there isn't a, a clear hadith on either. The evidence is a linguistic evidence about whether going back to your place means going back to putting your hands on your chest or it means just going back to putting your back straight. Very, very difficult to argue either side with, with conviction. These issues, it is better uh, that you deal with them uh, amongst people who you think will receive them well, who you ha are having a genuine discussion with about finding the truth. That is, that those should not really be dealt with in the general people that you stop someone you don't know and say, oh, you know, when you come from Rokur, you should put your hands on your chest because, because the, the evidence for both is very strong and it's very difficult to argue one point. But in the middle, you have a whole range of issues. And some of them, it is worth, you know, if the, for example, if the action itself is an innovation, it's not a difference of opinion, it's an innovation. Like making dua in congregation after the prayer. This is a bid'ah that Umar beat the people for doing. When Umar heard about the people making dua in congregation, he commanded those people who made dua in congregation to be beaten and he joined them in in beating them. So this is a serious issue that needs to be dealt with and the advice needs to be given in the proper way. Then you have these issues that, are, that don't fall under innovation, but they fall under you know, differences of opinion between the madahib. So this issue of dua after the prayer is not a difference of opinion in the madahib. This is a, an innovation. It's not to do with the difference of opinion in the madahib. A difference of opinion in the madahib, for example, reading Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim out loud for Surah Al-Fatiha or reading it quietly. Again, in these differences, there are some that are very, very, very clearly right and wrong, in which case you might want to bring some of those up, especially if you've built a relationship with the person, and of course you want good for them, and you want to give them some advice. And some of them are a bit less clear. For example, the issue of reading Surah Al-Fatiha, uh, reading the Basmala out loud, 
is an issue again that there is evidence for both and even the scholars of hadith many of them said that you can do either and some of them said that the Prophet sometimes did it based on the hadith of Anas and some of them said that he never did so that again that is more difficult to advise so what I really want you to understand is that ikhtilaf or disagreement is of many different types those things that are shirk and innovation you deal with you never ever let them go those things that are very hard to argue both sides one way or the other you let them go and those things in the middle is a judgment call. It's not a matter of every time you correct them or every time you don't correct them. If you have the opportunity to correct them and you think it's going to bring about good, then correct them. And if you don't have the opportunity to correct them uh, or the evidence that you have is not strong, then don't correct them. So I guess that is the, the three type of categories. One is shirk or innovation and it becomes a really serious matter and you have to deal with it. One is the one where the evidence is very even on both sides and it's very, very, very hard to argue one side or the other, in which case you leave it. And one is the area in the middle, in which case it's a judgment call for you to make about whether you think you should deal with it or not. For example, if you go to a, uh, a country where there is a very, very strong uh, practice of a particular madhab and people would be very upset with you, you're probably not going to do the first time you come into the masjid is start having a discussion about putting your hands on your chest instead of below your navel. You know, you, this is because this is going to cause more difficulty for the people than it is good. But maybe you have one or two friends there. You can start to talk to them, show them the evidence, try to get them to, you know, sort of realize that. And at the end of the day, you realize it's not an issue of wala and bara. You know, it's not an issue that I'm going to cut off from this person. I'm never going to speak to them again because they put their hands below their chest when they're praying in the prayer. Because this is a, a valid opinion even though it's a weaker opinion than the other one, then inshallah there's no harm in, you know, there's no cutting off in that. But when it comes to shirk and bid'ah, and serious issues where there's a clear evidence that, that this action is wrong, then these issues need to be dealt with, uh, and the Prophet ﷺ would deal with them very severely and very, very harshly. And he wouldn't uh, let them go and just say, oh, you're new Muslims, you know, you asked me for a tree, don't worry about it. He, you know, he dealt with it extremely severely. So I think that there are, those are the three different types of situation. And a lot of times it's a judgment call. Sometimes even you see a bid'ah, but you don't want to deal with the bid'ah. Why? Because you fear that much more evil is going to come about if you deal with it directly. And you want to deal with it indirectly by educating people a little bit first to the point where they actually start to realize themselves that it's not right. For example, there are different ways, you know, like they say, that there's more than one way to do things. I mean, you can, sometimes you can give people a very positive side by giving them a book about the prayer and then they come to it and realize that their prayer is a bit wrong and then they change. And sometimes you have to actually deal with an issue directly and say, you know, this thing that you're doing here is not right. And I think at the end of the day, it's, a lot of times it's a judgment call that you have to make. And it's about what we said when we talked about forbidding evil. And we said that if you think a worse situation is going to come about, you, then it's not permissible for you to, to get involved in that. Um, and if you think that you are able to make a, a positive change, then give your nasiha because, inshallah, that's their right upon you. And you don't want them to come on the Day of Judgment and say that I didn't know it was wrong and he didn't tell me. You want them to come and say, yeah, he told me, uh, you know, and, uh, and for them to accept it. Clarifying that Iman decreases because of disobedience and negating it from the one committing the act of disobedience with the meaning of negating its completion. Look at the virtue of Al-Imam al nawawi And Al-Imam al nawawi just explains the whole hadith for you. 
And alhamdulillah, as long as you have the chapter titles, يعني, I don't need to do too much. And Imam al-Nawawi gives you the understanding of the hadith. Before that, I wanted to clarify something with regard to Iman and with regard to the statement La yu'min, he doesn't believe. We said there are three ways of understanding he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe at all. He doesn't believe in a way that is sinful but doesn't take him out of Islam. And he doesn't believe in a complete way that is, the, you know, that is according to the, sort of the voluntary deeds. In general, Ahl-Sunnah are always in the middle. But who do you think is on either side? And I'm just going to ask you this question just to wake you guys up. Ahl-Sunnah say that the ahadith that say he does not believe are referring to Al-Iman Al-Wajib. The obligatory Iman that doesn't take you outside of Islam but that you're sinful if you don't have it. Ahl-Sunnah in the middle. Who is on the left and who is on the right? Who is it who says that if you don't treat your neighbor well, you're not a Muslim? The Khawarij. That's the easy bit. Who is it who says if you don't treat your neighbor well, you haven't done a Sunnah? The Murji'ah. The Murji'ah. Now, here's the key question. Why? Why do the murji'ah refer to all of these ahadith, la yu'min, as referring to the sunnah and not referring to the obligatory? Because for them, actions are not a part of the essence of your iman. And therefore, they make these actions a part of the sunnah. For them, all actions are a part of the, the sunnah element of your iman, building upon your iman. None of them are part of the essence of your iman. So we have the murji'ah on, the side, on one side who say that every single hadith that says la yu'min refers to al-iman al-mustahab. And then you have the khawarij who say that every hadith that refers to la yu'min refers to asl al-iman. They're not Muslim at all. And then you have ahl sunnah in the middle who say they are Muslim but they are missing the obligatory iman that they are required to have. Let's apply this to this hadith. Abu Huraira reported the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, The fornicator who fornicates is not a believer while, I think so long as is not really the right word, it's, uh, it's really while, while, while he is committing it. Or while he commits it. And no thief who steals is a believer while he commits theft. And no drunkard who drinks wine is a believer while he drinks it. And Abdul Malik uh, ibn Abi Bakr narrated this on the authority of Abu Bakr ibn Abdul Rahman ibn Harith and then said Abu Huraira made this addition. No plunderer who plunders a valuable thing that attracts the attention of people is a believer as long as he commits this act. And Abdul Malik uh, ibn Shu'aib narrated the hadith on the authority of Abu Huraira that he observed the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, that a fornicator does not fornicate and then he narrated the hadith li- like this and he made the mention of plundering too but, but did not mention a thing a thing, not a thin a thing having value Ibn Shihab said Sa'id ibn Musayyib and Abu Salama narrated this hadith on the authority of Abu Huraira like this without mentioning the plundering all of these are to do with whether the plundering is mentioned or not is a hadith issue it's not really a concern of us our concern uh, in this is the issue of Iman. And it's very, very simple. This hadith refers to 
the obligatory level of Iman and it does not refer to the essence of Iman. The Khawarij said this hadith refers to the essence of Iman. You commit zina, you're not a Muslim. You drink wine, you're not a Muslim. You lie, you're not a Muslim. You steal, you're not a Muslim. You plunder, you're not a Muslim. You fornicate, you're not a Muslim. This is the Khawarij. The Murjiya said, you're a believer if you commit zina. You're a, you're, you're a, a believer who has all of their obligatory iman if you drink wine. Your iman and the iman of Jibril, if you're a fornicator, your iman and the iman of Jibril is the same, according to the Murjiah. There's no difference between your iman and the iman of Jibril, even if you fornicate. Ahlul Sunnah said no. Like Al-Imam An-Nawawi said, negating its completion, i.e. its obligatory completion. And you might want to add the word obligatory to the title of Imam al-Nawi. It's obligatory completion. And that's not, Imam al-Nawi didn't mention it, but that's just to clarify so that we don't end up on one side or the other. We're talking about the obligatory Iman. And remember, we said there are three levels. Islam, Iman, Ihsan. And in this area, Islam is the minimum you need to be a Muslim. Iman is when you obey Allah and you avoid disobeying Allah and Ihsan is when you do the voluntary deeds. So Islam is basically the basic level that keeps you a believer, a Muslim. Iman is the obeying, obeying Allah and avoiding disobeying Allah and Ihsan is the voluntary deeds. So Ahl Sunnah, they said that these ahadith relate to Iman, i.e. the middle category. The Murji'ah said they relate to Ihsan. And the Khawarij said they relate to Islam. So the Khawarij said that he's not a believer. Whereas the answer here is that he is a believer. When would he not be a believer? When would the Zani leave Islam? When would the Zani leave Islam completely? When he considers it to be halal. So the sin here is not the zina. It's not the zina that makes him kafir. What makes him kafir is declaring halal what Allah Azza wa Jal made haram. But in this, be careful of a shubha that is used by the khawarij. They say the zani would not have done the zina unless he believed it was halal. And usually they don't use it with zina, but they apply it to the rulers. They say the ruler would not have permitted X, Y, Z unless he thought it was halal. And that's not true, and it's not true for any individual, and it's not true for the ruler either. Because it's very clear that at the end of the day, many of us do things we know they're wrong, but we, you know, we struggle to, to get over our nafs. And you know, nobody, everyone is the same in this. So the only time the person committing zina leaves Islam is if they declare it to be halal. I.e. they know it's haram, and they say, I don't care that I know it's haram, it's halal. In this, is it necessary for the person to actually commit zina to declare it to be halal? You can become a disbeliever simply by declaring zina to be halal even if you don't do it. And you can become a disbeliever by declaring drinking wine to be halal even if you don't do it. They say, okay, but if you allow someone to drink wine, you must believe it's halal. No, it's not true. Maybe, you know, people are afflicted by something in their nafs. They, they, you know, they have a desire for the dunya or they're struggling to get over. But they realize, they say, no, you know, in Islam, alcohol is haram. 
in Islam, alcohol is haram. But I've allowed it to be drunk. And that person is missing the obligatory iman, but they're still a Muslim. And so don't be fooled by the shubha of the khawarij that they use when they say that if he allowed it, he must think it's halal. And that's not true. It's not true of them, it's not true of any individual either, because this is normal human behavior, that you have weaknesses, and uh, that doesn't mean that you think that it's halal in Islam. Also, an action is not permissible to derive a person's belief simply just from you know, the fact that they, this action, when you don't know the reason behind it, you don't know whether they were pressured, you don't know whether they were... Uh, fooled by the dunya, you don't know whether they were weak, you don't know whether they thought it was halal or haram, and what a person enters with certainty, they can only leave with certainty, so if you enter Islam with certainty, you can only leave Islam with certainty you can't be like, well I saw this person in a pub drinking alcohol so they mustn't be a Muslim, but that doesn't that's not certainty, that's not certainty that's not something that guarantees you or, or establishes for certain that that person left Islam. And if they entered Islam with certainty, they can only leave Islam with certainty. And that means that they make a clear statement that I believe that alcohol is halal for every Muslim. In which case, they left Islam. I think we've explained uh, that hadith uh, enough. And I think obviously the hadith contains the evil of those major sins and all of the sins that are mentioned there are major sins. Chapter 25, the characteristics of a hypocrite. It's narrated on the authority of Abdullah ibn Amr that the Prophet ﷺ said four characteristics, anyone who possesses them is a sheer hypocrite. And anyone who possesses one of them possesses a characteristic of hypocrisy until he abandons it. When he speaks, he lies. When he makes a covenant, he acts treacherously. When he quarrels, he deviates from the truth. And on the authority of Abu Huraira, there are three signs of a hypocrite. When he speaks, he lies. When he makes a promise, he acts treacherously. And when he trusted, when he was trusted, he betrayed. And on the authority of Abu Huraira, Three characteristics of a hypocrite. When he, spoke, he, when he speaks, he lies. When he makes a promise, he acts treacherously. And when he was entrusted with something, he betrays it. So the four that you have there, if you make a note of them, when he speaks, he lies. That's number one. When he makes a covenant, he acts treacherously. That's number two. When he quarrels, he deviates from the truth. That's number three. And when he was trusted, he betrayed. That's number four. So four characteristics, whoever has them, has the characteristics of a hypocrite. Okay. In order to understand this hadith correctly, and you can see the problem that is going to come, the problem in this hadith, in terms of uh, iman, is the statement that whoever possesses all of them is a sheer hypocrite. Munafiq khalis complete hypocrite. How do we understand this? Because now we, we need to stick to our firm belief that the major sins don't take a person out of Islam. So let's imagine here sat next to me is an imaginary Abdullah. Abdullah is a liar. Whenever he speaks, he lies. Abdullah, whenever he makes a contract, he betrays it. He acts treacherously. Whenever Abdullah gets in an argument, he turns away from the truth and he follows the falsehood. 
And whenever Allah, Abdullah is given a trust to fulfill, he betrays it. Is Abdullah a Muslim or not? Raise your hands if you think that Abdullah is a Muslim. Jayid, we have a lot of people who learned well today. MashaAllah, tabarakallah. You can give yourself a little pat on the back for that. That we learned that the major sins don't take you outside of Islam. Taib, we have a problem. How can he be a Shia hypocrite and be a Muslim? That is the question. How can he be a Shia hypocrite and be a Muslim? And that is because hypocrisy is of two types. Nifaqun i'tiqadi and nifaqun amali. So there is hypocrisy in action and hypocrisy in belief. Action and belief. As for hypocrisy in belief, it is to conceal disbelief inside and show belief on the outside. And this is nothing to do with this hadith at all. This hadith has nothing to do with al-nifaq al-i'tiqadi. has nothing to do with al-nifaq in belief. Al-nifaq in belief is kufr. And the person is not a Muslim. However, nifaq in action is a major sin. And it's not kufr. And therefore, if a person has one of these characteristics, they are a major, they're involved in a major sin. If they have all four, they have completed hypocrisy in action in every way. I.e. everything that relates to a person's actions being hypocritical can be found in these four things. If a person has all four of them, then they are truly a hypocrite in action, but not in belief. They're a hypocrite in action. That's because whenever they speak, they lie. Whenever they are given a trust or a a covenant, they break it. When they argue, they go away from the truth. And when they're given a trust, they betray it. That means they in every single part of their action, they're a hypocrite. However, in their belief, they're not a hypocrite. Because this has nothing to do with a person's iman or belief, sorry. It has to do with a person's iman, but not to do with a person's uh, i'tiqad, a person's belief about Allah Azza So again, the same thing is said here, as is said in the previous examples, that at the end of the day, this person is from among the worst of the major sinners to have that complete nifaq in every action they do. And that suggests that they have a very, very low level of iman and that they are extremely far away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but it does not take them outside of the religion of Islam unless they have a nifaq al-i'tiqadi, they have nifaq in their belief, and they hold kufr in their heart and show Islam in their outward actions. Al-Khattabi gave another way of explaining this hadith. So the way I've explained to you now is the first way. Al-Khattabi gave another way of explaining. Now, the first way I think is the easiest way to explain. Al-Khattabi gave another way. He said that a person who has all of these four qualities and practices them every single day and night, they have taken them as a way of religion and it moves from being uh, a nifaq in action to a true nifaq. Because it, it essentially leads them, if a person has these four qualities in every single thing that they do, they essentially, it becomes a, their, their means of religion becomes lying and betraying people and it starts to go into their belief instead of just being in their action. 
Because when you lie about everything, you don't say that you're truthful to Allah and you lie to everybody else. You know, you take the covenant from Allah, but you betray the covenant of everybody else. You are treacherous, to, you're, you're trustworthy towards Allah and you're treacherous towards everybody else. So Al-Khattabi gave another way of looking at it, which I think is not as strong as the first one, but it still has a, a way of understanding it in, within the belief of Ahl-Sunnah. That basically what he's saying is that if you have all of these four, it will slip into a matter of belief in the sense that you'll end up behaving towards Allah the same way that you behave towards the people and once you behave treacherously towards Allah and you lie against Allah and you betray the trust of Allah then you become and essentially you become a munafiq in reality the third uh, uh, explanation that some of the scholars give for this hadith and I think this is the weakest of the three is they say that the meaning of this is one particular hypocrite at the time or some of the hypocrites at the time of the Prophet and that it doesn't apply outside of them. But this is something that doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to have a lot of weight to it because this seems to be a general statement. And the first one is the one that is the obvious one and it's the one that is uh, the most uh, accurate. Uh, but at the end of the day, all of these three show that the scholars of the Sunnah did not apply this hadith as taking the major sins into disbelief. So you have the first group who said that it is nifaq in action. You have the second group who said that it is a matter of such bad action that you actually go into kufr because of the evil of your action. And uh, the third group uh, said that it refers to a specific group of munafiqeen who had these characteristics in Medina and it doesn't refer to uh, all of the Muslims at every single time. But the first one is the, is the right opinion. Chapter 26. Clarifying the conditions of Iman for one who says to his Muslim brother or Kafir. We're getting onto the topic of takfir now. And the use of the word kufr. Uh, we have a number of chapters. A number of chapters in which Al-Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala deals with the word kufr deals with the word kufr so what I'm going to do as has been my habit for today I'm going to start by summarizing to you the belief of Ahl sunnah with regard to the use of the word kufr in a hadith and the word kafir so we begin by establishing a key principle and that is not everybody who commits an act of kufr is a kafir. This is a key principle. And you can ingrain this you know, in your mind in every hadith that you read. That not everybody who commits an act of kufr is a kafir. Rather there are conditions and impediments. It sounds so much nicer in Arabic to say shurut wa mawani' but in English it doesn't sound quite right but conditions and impediments i.e. there are things that have to be present and there are things that have to be absent for the kufr to apply to for a person to go from an act of kufr to being a kafir and generally the scholars of Islam mention three Generally, the scholars of Islam mention three. The first is 
the person has to have knowledge and must not be ignorant. The person has to have knowledge and must not be ignorant. So there you have a, you have a condition and an impediment. The condition is knowledge and the impediment is ignorance. If you have a person who commits an act of kufr out of ignorance, they don't leave Islam. Now, I'm, that, I will admit that is very, very, very oversimplified because actually it's more complicated than that. But for now, we, we want to get these core principles and then we'll deal with exceptions. In general, a person who is ignorant does not uh, go from kufr to kafir. The second one is freedom or free will versus being forced. Freedom of choice versus being forced. Because Allah has forgiven for this ummah those things that they are forced to do. So imagine that a person makes a statement of kufr because they were forced to do so. We have this example amongst the Sahaba. We have the example of ignorance, uh, as in the hadith of Zatu Anwat make for us a tree like you have a tree. The Prophet did not ask them to take the shahada again. So for the first one, you can write next to it the evidence of the tree. There are many, many ahadith, but just one for you to remember, the evidence of the tree. Because when the tree, that they asked the Prophet to make us a tree for barakah, the Prophet said, you have said to me, like the people of Musa said to him, make for us a god like they have gods. So if they said to the Prophet make for us a god, why did the Prophet ﷺ not ask them to take the shahada again? Because they were ignorant. We were new to Islam. We were new to Islam. We had only just left disbelief. The hadith says, We were new, we were almost just had come out of disbelief. We were ignorant. Prophet did not ask them to take the shahada again. He rebuked them and they repented and he did not say you have left Islam and I'm going to carry out the punishment of apostasy and I'm, or I'm going to demand you take the shahada again or I'm going to give you three days if you don't accept Islam. Then you know, All of these things, none of this was done. None of this was done. And this happened more than once that new people to Islam made a statement that was disbelief. And the Prophet rebuked them for it and, that was, and they repented and that was it. As for freedom, one of the companions was forced uh, to uh, insult the Prophet ﷺ. And he came to the Prophet ﷺ and he was very distraught because he thought that he had left Islam. And the Prophet ﷺ instructed him that there was nothing wrong with what he did and he said that if they force you to do it again, do it again. Because Allah ﷺ revealed those people whose hearts, who they are forced to do it, but their hearts are, their hearts are full of iman. And that was the state. You know, a person who is forced to make a statement of kufr, somebody, you know, when there are troubles and trials and fights between, you know, in countries where there are, say, for example, one Muslim group and another, and, and another religion, and then they, you know, people catch other people in fighting and say, you know, are you a Muslim or are you a Christian? You say you're a Christian, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't take you outside of Islam. 
Because your heart is full of Iman and you're saying it because you're being forced to say it. You're saying it because you're being forced to say it. So, the freedom of choice uh, versus uh, the freedom of, freedom of choice uh, versus uh, being forced to do something. And the third is a misconception versus being clear on the issue. And this is different from a lack of knowledge. A lack of knowledge, you didn't know it was disbelief in the first place. When they asked about the tree, they, they had no idea that what they were saying was disbelief. But we're talking about a shubha, i.e. somebody is confused. They, they should know that it's disbelief, but they've become confused. And an example of this, and it's a bit of a controversial example because some of the scholars don't accept it as an excuse, but to give you an example, you have a person who is making dua to a dead person in the grave. This is an act of kufr. And there's no disagreement on this. This is an act of kufr. But while they are doing it, you ask them, what are you doing? And they say, Allah said that these are the people through whom we seek a wasila to Allah. Now that's not what the ayah means, but that's what they understood the ayah to mean. So all I'm doing is seeking a wasila to Allah. That person does not become kafir, and there's some ikhtilaf on that issue, because some of the scholars hold they become kafir anyway. But I said to you, it's not as easy as I'm going to explain it to you. But the basic idea is they don't become kafir because what they have done is kufr. However, they have a confusion that they think what they are doing is valid because of an ayah or a hadith and they've become confused. So once their confusion is lifted, then they would go from, become, from a, an action of kufr to becoming a disbeliever in Islam. Again, I, I, you know, I stress to you that it's not that simple because there are cases where the scholars disagree how much do we allow ignorance how much do we allow misconceptions at what point do we draw the line there's also something in Islam called those things that are known in Islam by necessity i.e. that when you look at them nobody is unaware of them for example a person says I didn't know that Muslim women have to wear hijab that's not a valid form of ignorance because everybody, Muslim and non-Muslim, knows that Muslim women have to wear hijab. So there are some areas of, you know, sort of uh, difficulty. That certainly on the last point, there is a lot of disagreement about how far you go to allow somebody for their mistakes or to allow somebody for their confusion, and so on and so forth. But the basic concept is for someone to go from kufr to kafir, they have to know what they're doing. They have to be free doing it of their own free will. And they have to be clear on the issue with no confusion. Generally, that's a good point to begin with. That's the first area of the belief of Ahlul Sunnah with regard to takfir. Or with regard to kufr and the use of the word kufr in the, uh, uh, in the ahadith. Attached to that is the difference between making a general statement and a specific statement of disbelief. There's nothing wrong with making a general statement of disbelief, 
But Ahlul Sunnah refrain from making specific statements against individuals without establishing all of the facts and without having the knowledge to do so. And this is all about what we call takfir al-mu'ayyan, making takfir of a specific person. Now I can say to you, anyone who calls upon other than Allah is kafir. Anyone who makes dua to other than Allah is kafir. Anyone who declares what Allah made halal to be haram is kafir. These are all perfectly valid statements. The problem comes when we try to apply that to fulan and fulan and fulan. And we say he and he and he is kafir. This is not what we do. This we leave to the major scholars of Islam and to the judges who are able to distinguish the facts of the case in full and to establish for certain whether this person has uh, left Islam or not. So there is a difference between general statements of takfir which are perfectly acceptable and you'll find in many books of Aqeedah, many books of, of Iman, Kitab al-Iman in Sahih Muslim, you will find general statements of takfir. Whoever does this is kafir. Some of those will not be full kufr, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But in any case, you will find general statements of takfir. And you will find the imams of Islam making general statements of takfir. Like the statement of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala, that whoever says that Allah is on the earth is kafir. And whoever says, I doubt that Allah is in the heavens, is kafir. This is the opinion of Abu Hanifa. Whoever says that Allah is on the earth is kafir. And whoever says that I don't know whether Allah is above the heavens is kafir. However, do we apply that now to Muhammad and Fatima and Aisha and Maryam and Abdullah? No. That is required to be left to the major scholars of Islam. It's required to be left to a judge who is able to establish the facts of the case or a scholar who is able to establish the facts of the case, who is able to establish whether the person has left Islam, whether the person has not, whether they are ignorant, whether they know what they're doing, whether they have a confusion, whether they have... Otherwise, we'd, we'd kick half of the Muslim Ummah out of Islam, in all honesty. You know, I mean, how many of us have been taught, you know, just as children, Allah is everywhere. This is Kufrun Akbar, takes you outside of the religion of Islam. There's no Islam left for the one who says Allah is everywhere. However, everybody says it. People say it because they don't know. They have a confusion. They say, oh, because you can't say that Allah is limited to one place. So they're just confused. It's not they, they haven't left Islam. They're just confused. However, if we applied the hadith of Abu Hanifa or the athar of Abu Hanifa to them, none of them would be Muslim. And we divorce all of them, break between the husband and wife, don't pray with them, don't give them salam. You know, if they, if they die, bury them in the graveyard of the non-Muslims. This is the danger of takfir. That we don't apply takfir to an individual without first establishing all of the facts of the case and if applying takfir to an individual, it takes a person, uh, it should only be done by a scholar of Islam who is qualified and ideally by a Muslim judge who has the authority to make these decisions. You know, they're brought before the Sharia court. What did you say? Is it true that you said that Allah is on the earth? 
Yes, because you can't limit, okay, I'll explain to you, actually, you're confused, Allah says that he's in the heavens, etc., etc., etc. You can't say that Allah is in the toilet, you can't say that Allah is in a nightclub, you can't say that Allah is inside of me and you. Okay, do you understand? Yes. And there is a, a process there. And that process should be overseen by the official, you know, by the state, by the, the judges and by the people of authority, and not for the individual Muslims to be going around that he's not Muslim and he's not Muslim. However, as a general statement, there's no doubt that it's true. Whoever says that XYZ, whoever believes XYZ is kafir. And that's why you'll find many statements of takfir inside the books of Sahih Muslim, Sahih al-Bukhari. You'll find it inside of the books of the Sunnah. You'll find it inside the books of Aqidah. But there is a difference between takfir of a general statement and takfir of an individual. The general statement is in theory, the individual is in practice. The theory is fine, but the practice of it is something that has to be left to uh, the scholars of Islam and it has to be established in truth. Otherwise, you are going to end up throwing half of the Muslim ummah and then some out of Islam without any knowledge. And most of them will be excused by Allah and Allah knows best because they didn't know anything. And they're just repeating something they've heard they don't understand. Like when you say to somebody this issue of where is Allah? Allah is above the heavens. And there's no doubt about that. It's mentioned in over 2,000 ayat and ahadith. Over 2,000 ayat and ahadith. As Imam al-Dhahabi and others said. That Allah is in the heavens. And you're talking about hundreds of ayat in the Quran. Not just one or two hundreds of ayat. Then look at the alternative. If Allah is not in the heavens, you have two options. Either Allah is on the earth, or Allah is nowhere. These are the only two options. Either Allah is on the earth, or Allah is nowhere. If Allah is on the earth, then Allah is inside of you, and inside of me, and inside of the toilet, Allah, and inside of the nightclub, and inside of the alcohol, and inside of the pig, and inside of the dog. This we can't say about Allah. This is kufr. You can't say this about Allah. If Allah is nowhere, you're an atheist. Because that's what the Jahmiya said. They said, لا خارج العالم ولا داخله ولا يسمع ولا... So the Jahmiya, this is the Jahmiya. The Jahmiya said Allah is not inside or outside and Allah is not above and He's not below and Allah is not outside and not in and Allah is not you and He's not me and Allah is not above and Allah is not below and Allah is not in the heavens and Allah is not in the earth. That's atheism. Because you don't believe that Allah is anywhere. So either you say Allah is everywhere or you say Allah is nowhere, or you say Allah is above the heavens. And the only answer according to the sunnah that you can give is that Allah is above the heavens in a way that suits His majesty. And how that works, we are not asked to understand. Allah in a way that suits His majesty. But many people, they say this, they don't understand. And they, they simply say it out of respect to Allah. That, oh subhanAllah, we can't say Allah is above because that means Allah is limited. So we, out of respect, we say Allah is everywhere. And they don't realize they're actually disrespecting Allah, but it's just something people are taught, you know, they don't understand the reality of it. And this is a, I gave this example because I want you to understand that if you applied the general rules of takfir, you would probably yourselves not even be safe. Because many of us, we do things that might fall under the general rule of takfir without realizing, without understanding the implications of what we're saying. We might fall under the general rule, and this is something that, this is why the Ikhwani, the Khawarij, never ever survive. The Khawarij self-destruct. 
And if you look at the Khawarij in general over history, they self-destruct every few years. They self-destruct. You know, because they can't survive. Because in the end, they will end up making takfir of themselves. And this is what happens. Until one of them said, Wallah, this is true. One of them said, as far as we know, this is true. Two of them, you know, they're making takfir of each other. You know, they're making takfir of the whole world, you know, the ruler, the, the Muslims who follow the ruler, the people who live in the country. So the guy gets down to the last one and he says, you know, there's no Muslim left in the world except for me and you. That's not the funny bit. His friend turns to him and says, if you think this, you're kafir. <laughs> and then he said, subhanAllah, I realized. And he wrote his repentance and his tawbah. He said, subhanAllah, when this happened, I realized the evil of the khawarij and the takfiriyun, the people of takfir. That subhanAllah, look at it. You know, you got to the point where you made takfir of everyone in the world except two people. And then when he heard it, he said, if you believe this, you're kafir. Yani the khawarij don't exist because they constantly explode. They constantly make takfir of themselves. You know, it becomes, you're not Muslim, okay, you're not Muslim. You disagree with me, you're not Muslim. And if we went down this methodology, there'd be nobody left in Islam. Until the guy's going to be on his own. I'm the only Muslim left in the world. And this is something that won't even happen until the day of judgment. The Prophet said, لا تزال طائفة there will not cease to be a group of my ummah upon the truth. And it's only me left in the world. Nobody else is Muslim. And this methodology of takfir will never, ever, ever survive. But it keeps rearing its head. Every few years, somebody comes up with it. They make takfir of everybody. Then it self-destructs. Then they come up again. The only ones that are left, really, from the mainstream khawarij over a, a sustained period of time are the ibadiyah. The Ibadiyah are a sect that is primarily based in Oman. And the reason why they are left is because they don't make takfir. They have the same belief, but they consider that you're, just, uh, that you're neither Muslim nor are you non-Muslim. So the belief of the Ibadiyah is that you're not a Muslim and you're not a Kafir. So this is another sect of the Khawarij who believe that you're not a Muslim and you're not a Kafir. If you do a major sin... You're not a Muslim and you're not a Kafir. You're just nothing. You're just manzila bayn manzilatayn. You're just basically like, you're neither a Muslim nor are you a Kafir. And that's the reason, the only reason they've survived over a long period of time. Because basically, anybody else, once you start making takfir of everybody, everybody left, nobody left is a Muslim. And then you end up just making takfir of yourselves amongst each other. So this is very important, a very important principle. And then we have to understand, and this is my final point, is that not every kufr that is mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah is a kufr that takes you outside of Islam. So far we've been talking about kufr that takes you outside of Islam. We said not every kufr makes you a kafir. And we're talking about kufr that takes you outside of Islam. However, not every kufr mentioned in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah is kufr that takes you out of Islam in the first place. And I'll give you one example. And it's the classic. You know, the one that you hear again and again and again and again. The Khawarij recycle this, you know, so much. You know, they should get like green points for the environment. You know, this is just, they recycle this all the time. وَمَنْ لَمْ يَحْكُمْ بِمَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهَ هُمُ الْكَافِرُونَ Whoever does not rule by what Allah revealed, they are the disbelievers. Ibn Abbas said about this ayah, kufrun duna kufr. 
It is kufr that doesn't take you outside of Islam. There is another way of looking at this ayah as well. Uh, as, as we gave three ways of looking at the hadith of the munafiq, there are other ways of looking at this ayah as well. One is to say that ruling by other than what Allah revealed can make you a zalim or a fasiq or a kafir according to whether you believe you have the right to do it or not. So that's one way of explaining the ayah. Because there are three ayat in the Qur'an, all of them use the same thing. At the end of it, the word is different. Whoever does not rule by what Allah revealed, they are the oppressors, they are the disobedient, they are the disbelievers. Oppressors, disobedient, disbelievers. Some of the scholars said, according to how they rule, is according to which one applies. So if they know what they're doing is wrong, but they're overcome by their desires, they're oppressing themselves. And if they're openly promoting it, but they don't believe that it's true, then they are defiantly disobedient. And if they are believing that they have the right to disobey Allah and that it's okay for a person to, uh, to reject the Qur'an, then they are disbelievers. That's one way of looking at it. However, Ibn Abbas, specifically my point in this ayah, is that Ibn Abbas said about the ayah, kufrun do not kufr. It is disbelief, but does, it doesn't take you outside of Islam. And there are other ways of looking at the ayah as well. Uh, there are other opinions regarding the ayah. But the point here is that for certain, not every kind of kufr mentioned in the Qur'an and in the sunnah is a kufr that takes you outside of Islam. And we're going to hear clear evidence from Sahih Muslim in this regard. Not one hadith, but maybe ten or more hadith that contain the word kufr that cannot possibly take you outside of Islam. By agreement, and Imam al-Nawawi mentions this in the, uh, in the title. For example, uh, if, we just, if you flick on the title of chapter 28, insulting a Muslim is an evil action and fighting him is disbelief. We're not going to explain this hadith, I'm just pointing out the title. Fighting him is disbelief. What do you reply to that? The Khariji says, right, whoever fights the Muslims around the world is a kafir. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, fighting them is disbelief. Say, ya akhi, listen to me. Allah says, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اقْتَتَلُوا فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا فَإِنْ بَغَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا عَلَى الْأُخْرَى فَقَاتِلُوا الَّتِي تَبَغِي حَتَّى تَفِيءَ إِلَىٰ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ Job done. Allah says, if two groups of the believers fight against each other, make peace between them. And if one of them transgresses against the other by killing them, then fight against the one who transgresses and kill them until they return back to the command of Allah. And Allah described both groups as being min al-mu'mineen, from the believers. He didn't even say min al-muslimin, from the Muslims, min al-mu'mineen, from the people who are believers in Islam. If they fight against each other, then make peace, otherwise fight back against them. And this is what Allah says about the believers. Yet the Prophet said, That fighting against him is disbelief. So this is a very important understanding that not every form of disbelief, and there's no issue with someone saying the hadith is da'if, it's in Sahih Muslim. And it's not one hadith, it's 10 hadith, 12 hadith, 13 hadith. What are you going to do? Do you believe in part of the book and you don't believe in the other part? 
No, you have to take these two together. Allah says, if two groups of the believers fight against each other, and then the Prophet ﷺ says, fighting against the believer is disbelief. The only way to join between these two, and both of them are authentic, one is Quran, one is Sahih Muslim. The only way to join between them is to say the disbelief the Prophet ﷺ mentioned is a disbelief that is less than the disbelief that takes you outside of Islam. And then you go back to Ibn Abbas and the other companions who explain the same way. The same explanation. And then you find, alhamdulillah, now we've come to a solid conclusion that we've clearly shown that not every word of kufr in the hadith takes you outside of Islam. And with that, let us uh, start on our study of these few pages, insha'Allah ta'ala. Uh, all of them are going to be very similar, similar answers, but we just want to make sure we've understood the application of this principle. Clarifying the conditions of iman for the one who says to his Muslim brother or kafir. It is reported on the authority of Ibn Umar that the Prophet said, when a man calls his brother a kafir, it returns at least to one of them. The most obvious way of explaining this hadith is to concentrate on the word it returns. And maybe this will be clarified by reading the next hadith. It's reported on the authority of Ibn Umar that the Messenger of Allah said, any person who calls his brother a kafir, it will return to one of them. If it is so, as he asserted, then it returns to the one who he said it to. Otherwise, he returns it, it returns to him. So when a person says to his brother, you are a kafir, the sin or the, this thing returns either to one of the two. However, what is it that returns? What is it that returns? It is the sin that returns and not the kufr that returns. And this is clear from two things. First of all, what we explained previously regarding the understanding of kufr in the hadith. But secondly, even if you look at the wording of the hadith, when you see that it returns to one of them. Imagine this person you're accusing of being kafir is actually kafir. They're actually not Muslim. And you say to him, O oh, kafir, did he only become Muslim at the time you said to him, O oh, kafir? So what returns to him then? The only way you can understand this hadith is that the sin of the disbelief returns to one or the other. So either the person gets the sin of accusing his Muslim brother of disbelief without right, which is a massive sin in Islam, and that sin comes back to him, or the sin is attached to the one who committed the disbelief. And that is how we understand uh, this uh, particular hadith. Uh, again, a number of uh, explanations of the scholars of Islam with regard to these ahadith. I gave you the most apparent one, um, and that is that it is the sin that returns. However, we have some other ones as well. Uh, one is that true disbelief returns in the case that he believes it's permissible to make takfir of his Muslim brother. Okay, so that, that's number one. Or number one is what I said regarding, number one is what I said regarding the sin returns. So number one is the sin. Number two is that real kufr returns because he believes it is permissible 
to call his Muslim brother a kafir. And this is another example of istihlal. Basically that he believes that it's permissible for him to call his Muslim brother a kafir. The third is that, it is, is that this uh, hadith refers to the khawarij. And therefore, this hadith is an evidence for those people who consider the khawarij to be kuffar. And the opinion that the khawarij is kuffar is a mainstream opinion of many of the scholars of Islam, including Imam al-Bukhari and others, who held that the khawarij are not Muslim, i.e. that their bid'ah takes them outside of Islam. Uh, they based this upon a hadith like the hadith of the Prophet saying that they are the dogs of the hellfire and the hadith that iman goes through them like an arrow goes through game. Uh, there is nothing left on it and other hadith. So Imam al-Bukhari and a number of the other scholars of hadith held that the khawarij are not Muslim. So do you see how they would apply this hadith? They said this hadith applies to the khawarij and it's another evidence that the one who follows the methodology of the khawarij is himself kafir. However, in response to that, we say that Ali ibn Abi Talib authentically mentioned that they are Muslim. And this is a stronger opinion. That when they fought against Ali, because they fought against Ali ibn Abi Talib, and they fought and killed Ali ibn Abi Talib, that Ali radiallahu an considered them to be Muslim and applied the rulings of Islam to them. So he said, they are our brothers who have oppressed us. And he refused for, to allow them to be chased to the death when they fled the battlefield. So when they would flee the battlefield, he would not allow them to be chased and killed. He would apply the rulings of the Muslims to them. And this is the stronger opinion. And in fact, there's a danger by taking the other opinion that you may even fall into the very problem that the Khawarij fell into in the sense that we say that none of the none of the kufr applies except when you apply it to the khawarij and that becomes difficult, it becomes problematic because you're essentially making an exception to your own rule to apply it to them. However, this was a mainstream opinion and it was held by a number of the scholars of Islam uh, and there's no ikhtilaf regarding the permissibility of killing them and the permissibility of uh, the Muslim ruler expelling them from the lands and chasing them down and arresting them. There's no, there's, there's no ikhtilaf on this. This is something that all of the scholars agree the permissibility of, and the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ in this mentioned the reward of killing them, and that, that killing them is a great reward in the sight of Allah, and so on and so forth. There's no, there's no disagreement about this. But the disagreement is, are they killed as defiant, evil people, or are they killed as disbelievers? And according to Ali ibn Abi Talib, and the correct opinion is that they're killed as defiant Muslims, and they're not killed as uh, disbelievers, and Allah Azzawajal knows best. Number four is that it takes the person or it will lead the person to disbelief. That it will lead the person to disbelief. I.e. eventually that person will leave Islam. Whoever is involved in takfir, eventually the outcome will be that if they were not truthful they will leave Islam. Not that they left Islam by saying O Kafir but that the Allah will decree that their eventual outcome will be that they will leave Islam. So when someone says kafir, if he's not true about it, that Allah will decree that he is now on the road to leaving Islam. If he doesn't repent, he's going to end up, Allah is going to take him out of Islam and he's going to end up with the real kufr coming back to him uh, in that regard. 
And you can see that 2, 3, and 4, all of them refer to real kufr. All of them refer to real kufr. As in, it's real kufr because the person believes it's permissible, or it's real kufr that applies to the khawarij, or it's real kufr that leads a person to disbelief, i.e. that they will end up leaving Islam as a punishment for what they did. And the fifth and final is another one to join to the one of sin, i.e. it's not real kufr, that the takfir returns to him. And this is a little bit difficult to understand, but I will try to explain it as best I can. That the takfir returns, not the sin, but the takfir itself. And that is because your brother is a mirror to you. And so when you declared your Muslim brother to be kafir, it's as though you declared yourself to be kafir. And so effectively you're making takfir of yourself. And this is somewhat true in the sense that we mentioned that there's a funny thing about the ayah وَمَنْ لَمْ يَحْكُمْ بِمَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْكَافِرُونَ And the funny thing about the ayah is when the khawarij apply this to the Muslim rulers they themselves are guilty of the same sin they are accusing the, the other people of. Why? When they applied it to a Muslim without right, what did they just do? They just ruled by other than what Allah revealed. So the night is that by them saying it, they literally made takfir of themselves. Because when they applied it without the sunnah, they themselves have just been guilty of ruling by what other than Allah revealed. When they declared takfir on somebody else without right, they themselves were guilty of ruling by other than what Allah revealed. So effectively, they just made takfir of themselves. And that's a very valid point, that whenever you make takfir of someone without right, you are effectively making takfir of yourself. Either because your brother is a mirror to you, or either because you're ruling by other than what Allah revealed, in, in by, by saying that they are. You know, by accusing them of doing it, you're actually doing it yourself. And so that's a valid point as well. But I think that the, the key one here is that the, the most obvious one of them all is that the sin returns to the person. Either the sin of disbelief returns to one or it returns to the other. And Allah knows best. Clarifying the condition of the iman of the one who knowingly denies his father. I just wanted to clarify. I mean, infidelity is not, not the worst word in the, word, in the world. But the point is here that you need, I, I wanted to make it clear, the word used here is kufr. Illa kafar. Illa kafar. Nobody who claimed knowingly anyone else as his father uh, committed nothing but disbelief. And he who made a claim of anything which did not belong to him is not from us. And he should make his abode in the fire and anyone who labelled anyone with disbelief or called him enemy of Allah and he was not so, it rebounded on him. The latter part we've already clarified, but we add to that saying to someone you're the enemy of Allah when they're not the enemy of Allah or so on and so forth. Um, the, earlier, the, the, the other two bits we're going to deal with in a second. It's narrated on the authority of Abu Huraira that the Messenger of Allah said, do not detest your fathers, for whoever detested his father committed kufr. And it's reported on the authority of Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas. Both of my ears heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa saying this. 
Whoever claimed the fatherhood of anyone besides his real father, knowingly, paradise is forbidden to him. And Abu Bakr asserted that he too heard it from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Sa'ad and Abu Bakr, each of them said, My ears heard and my hearing preserved that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, He who claimed for another one his fatherhood besides his own father, knowing that it was not his father, paradise is forbidden to him. Before we deal with the issue of disbelief, let's just deal with the issue of not from us and paradise is forbidden. I think you guys know the, the way this works by now, but we'll, we'll clarify it anyway. Not from us. Not from us. Again, with regard to not from us, um, there was, uh, there is, uh, there are some, uh, some degree of, uh, there is some degree of disagreement regarding not from us. But we say that not from us does not mean not a Muslim, but it means that not, uh, uh, not in our group, not a part of the people of uh, the Sunnah or the people of obedience to Allah. And it's the same thing. So not, not from us, laysa minna, does not mean that they are not a Muslim at all. Uh, and uh, as the, it's not like the Murji'a said when they said that, it just means that he's not from the sabiqoon al-awwaloon, you know, he's not from the highest people of Jannah. No, it's the same issue here. Not from us, there are three levels. Not from us as in not a Muslim. Not from us as in not from the best of people. And not from us in the middle, i.e. not a proper Muslim as a proper Muslim should be in obeying Allah and avoiding disobeying Allah. And that is what is meant by not from us. Likewise, paradise is forbidden. We did cover will not enter Jannah and what that means. Uh, Paradise is forbidden means, uh, again, the same thing, that it's forbidden for them for the first entry to paradise, i.e. to enter into paradise with the, uh, those people who are not punished and are not uh, taken to account. And the same thing says about, the same thing goes about the major sins. If Allah Azza wa wills, He will forgive them. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills, He will punish them. However, you'll note again, that paradise is forbidden is used here for a sin that relates not only to the right of Allah, but to the right of the Father. Not only to the right of Allah, but to the right of the Father. So again, if the Father doesn't forgive the person, then paradise will be forbidden for them until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes them to account. uh, And then inshallah, if they are from the people of Tawheed, they will enter into paradise. So inshallah, that's clear to everybody. What is meant by those two statements? Not from us and paradise is forbidden. Paradise is forbidden means that it's forbidden for them to enter into paradise in the first uh, instance with all of the people who are not punished and so on and so forth. Uh, And not from us means not from the group of the believers who are obedient to Allah and it doesn't mean that he's not a Muslim. Likewise, his abode is the fire. His abode is the fire. The best explanation of this is the explanation that Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala gave with regard to the ayah وَمَنْ يَقْتُلْ مُؤْمِنًا مُتَعَمِّدًا فَجَزَاؤُهُ جَهَنَّمٍ Whoever kills a believer deliberately, his recompense is the hellfire. There are a number of um, opinions. Again, I could give you five or six different opinions but I'm just going to give you, in addition to what you've already heard, because you've already heard most of them in one way or another, 
is to give you a, a very clear explanation of what it means that his abode is the hellfire. Um, as far as I recall, I recall this from Ibn al-Qayyim, and I, I might be wrong, but as far as I remember, it was Ibn al-Qayyim who said this. He said that he deserves the hellfire. And Allah has threatened him with the hellfire. And I'm not quoting directly, so I'm paraphrasing. Allah has threatened him with the hellfire. And he deserves to be in it forever. He deserves to be in it forever. However, Allah has already promised that the people of Tawheed will not remain in it forever. And so this is by way of a threat to show the severity of the sin. And it is not a guarantee that they will be in the hellfire forever. So what he's saying is that when Allah says he will be in the hellfire, the meaning of this is what you deserve for this sin is to be in the hellfire. What you deserve for this sin is to be in the hellfire. However, Allah has promised separately in other hadith and ayat that the Prophet narrated and the ayat that Allah spoke to us that Allah has promised that the people of Tawheed will not remain in the hellfire forever. Therefore, the promise overrules the threat. The promise that Allah made overrules the threat. The threat is, if you kill a believer deliberately, you deserve hellfire forever. But Allah has already promised that you won't have it. So it's a means of scaring, it's a means of terrifying, it's a means of showing the severity of the sin, but it's also there to say that you won't get it because there are other ahadith that promise that you won't get it if you're from the people of Tawheed. So it shows the severity of the killing, the severity of attributing someone other than your father to be your real father. Uh, it shows the, uh, the, the, the extreme punishment that is deserving for the person who does this. But Allah has already promised that he may forgive some people and Allah has already promised that they will not remain in the hellfire forever. So those two promises override the punishment that was given. And there are other ways. Some people say it applies to the one who does so, believing that it's permissible, and it applies to the one who does so, i.e. that whoever does this will end in disbelief. And all of the other things you've already heard apply as well. But the strongest thing that is said about the statement, they are the people of the hellfire, is that this is what they deserve. I, I independently ignore all the other ayat. You deserve the hellfire forever. However, Allah has already promised that you won't have it because of his promise to the people of Tawheed that they will not remain in the hellfire forever. As for the statement of disbelief here, then this disbelief here, wallahu alam, is kufr and ni'mah. It is uh, dis, uh, kufr, the word kufr can be applied to disbelief and it can be applied to kufr and ni'mah, which is rejecting the blessings that someone has given you or rejecting the good that someone has done for you. So this person here has rejected the good that was done by his father. His father was, the reason for him existing after the decree of Allah was his father, and he has rejected his father. So he, it is more a case of rejection than it is of disbelief. Or you can say that it is kufr dun kufr, it's kufr that is less than, than full disbelief. All of these things are valid. So lots of things to deal with in this. Just another minute, inshallah, and we'll break. Uh, first of all, that the disbelief here is most likely uh, there's different ways you can look at it, but it's most likely to be kufr and ni'mah, i.e. disbelieving or rejecting a blessing that someone gave you. Uh, as for the abode is the fire, we mentioned uh, that this is a threat 
and that it is counterbalanced by the promise of Allah Azza not from us is the same ruling with regard to the three categories and Ahlul Sunnah are in the middle and likewise paradise is forbidden means they will be forbidden from it in the beginning and not in the end. Now just to clarify, somebody reads these and when you read them you're thinking look, you know Muhammad, you're going a long way away from what the hadith says but you have to read all of the hadith together. When you read all of the hadith together it is impossible to take these hadith any other way. And that is why people end up being misguided Because they read it separately And they don't read the rest of the Quran It is impossible that Allah says Allah does not forgive you to make a partner with him But he forgives anything less than that Is rejecting your father less than making a partner with Allah Or more than making a partner with Allah Less Therefore Allah has clearly said I will forgive it If I will Clearly in the Quran Whereas this, there is a way of understanding it As for the other ayat, there is no other way You can say Allah says, I will forgive it And so you can't If Allah says he will forgive it Again, you can't understand these ahadith To be absolute kufr that takes you outside of Islam Otherwise, you would be rejecting many of the other ayat And many of the other ahadith You would be rejecting ayat uh, in the Quran like these two ayat in Surah An-Nisa That Allah forgives everything less than that For whoever he wills And you would be rejecting the other ahadith in Kitab al-Iman And we've seen with regard to the clear answer Of the one that kills the, his Muslim brother That it's kufr But Allah says that if two believers Fight against each other and kill against each other Then make peace between them And he calls them both believers So the end of the day You have to take the Quran as a whole And you can't take these hadith uh, Without taking the rest of the ahadith and the rest of the ayat of the Quran with them And this is the only way to understand them Furthermore, and the last point I'll make on this is that These ahadith were not simply explained like this by Muhammad Tim Or by the teachers of Muhammad Tim You will find the same explanation of the hadith with the old ancient scholars of Islam You know, the likes of the four imams, the likes of the you know, the scholars of hadith, the Sufyan al-Thawri and the books of Aqidah like uh, the books of Ibn Khuzayma and the books of uh, Al-Darimi and the books of Imam Ahmed the, the ancient, you know, like the really old manuscripts of Aqidah in Islam the same explanation of these ahadith in fact, you will find Ibn Abbas and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum giving the same explanation of the hadith and that further cements your understanding that this is not something that is new it's not a new madhab or it's not a new Belief that was never held before This is how the Sahaba explained these hadith And this is how the Imams of Islam explained these hadith And that gives you further confidence That this explanation is inshallah ta'ala the right one And of course they disagreed in small points We said it's either option one or option two or option three But they all agreed that it's not kufr that takes you outside of Islam And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik Shadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu